I'm very happy to be able to welcome you to tonight's session of the Religions and the Practice of Peace uh, monthly uh, public colloquium series. Uh, I, am not, I can't claim any responsibility for this series at all, although I've tried to attend a number of the sessions, uh, and I've certainly enjoyed uh, seeing this develop uh, as, I think, an important part of the intellectual life, I think, both here at the Divinity School and in the university. Um, my name is William Graham. Uh, I'm a one-time, sometime dean of this school, but my home base is over in arts and sciences, and I'm back over there the last few years. Um, uh, where I uh, am both in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations uh, as uh, an, an Islamic specialist and also uh, in the study of religion as an historian of religion. Um, so my work is there, but I also teach students here uh, very regularly, as I have now for the last nearly 50 years, uh, and uh, will continue to do so, I hope, for another year or two at least. Um, I'm currently serving as the director this year uh, of the uh, <clears throat> Al-Wali bin Talal uh, Islamic Studies program here at Harvard. And it's in that capacity, really, that I'm here tonight. That and so I'm welcoming you on behalf of the Al-Wali program, which is helping to co-sponsor the session tonight. Uh, and <clears throat> it's a great pleasure that we're able to join with the RPP uh, on this topic of Islam tradition and resources for nonviolent conflict transformation. Uh, I'm also standing in for Dean Hempton. David Hempton is traveling uh, and won't get back in time to be with us tonight, and he's very sorry about that, but he's asked me to convey his regards to everyone and his apologies for not being with you. Uh, the RPP initiative is largely an initiative uh, that David himself has championed from the very beginning so I feel like it's really his baby in a lot of ways, and I know he's very sorry not to be here uh, tonight. Um, let me thank our panelists, uh, Dr. A. Rashid Omar uh, and Afra Jalabi, uh, both of them uh, for being willing to be here with us tonight. Uh, I want to thank our moderator, whom I'll introduce to you in just a moment, Jocelyn Cesari, uh, and everyone who's here tonight. Thank you for joining us this evening. Um, I'd also like to express our gratitude to RPP's generous uh, supporters, including uh, a couple who have done a great deal uh, in support of the Divinity School over the years, uh, and whom I know well and, and appreciate very much for their longtime support here at HDS, but they've been particular supporters here of the RPP initiative. Karen Vickers Budney, MD of 91. Uh, and Albert J. Budney, Jr., MBA 74, and ex-ed 96. Uh, both of them has helped make these events and other uh, RPP activities uh, possible. Uh, and finally, I'd like to thank all of the program staff and student assistants on the RPP and my own assistant at the Al-Walid Center uh, for their work in organizing tonight's session. Um, <clears throat> Now tonight, guiding our discussion as moderator is going to be, as I indicated, Jocelyne Cesari, uh, who is professor and chair of religion and politics at the University of Birmingham in the UK, as well there as uh, deputy director for internationalization and collaboration um, of the, um, or at the uh, Edward Cadbury Center for, for the Public Understanding of Religions. She is also a senior research fellow at Georgetown University's Berkeley Center on Religion peace and world affairs, so she is perfectly credentialed for this uh, uh, session tonight. A visiting lecturer on religion and politics here at Harvard Divinity School now for some years, Professor Cesari uh, teaches on contemporary Islam 
and was really the founder of our Harvard Interfaculty Program, uh, Islam in the West, some years ago. Uh, she is a leading specialist today, uh, as I think people around the world know her, uh, on Islam in Europe and America in particular. And these, this is readily uh, evident from her publications, of which I'll mention just a few. Her most recent books are The Awakening of Muslim Democracy, Religion, uh, and the subtitle Religion, Modernity, and the State, um, published in 2014 by Cambridge University, uh, and Why the West Fears Islam, an Exploration of Islam and Western Liberal Democracies, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2013. Her book, When Islam and Democracy Meet, Muslims in Europe and in the United States, also from Palgrave uh, in 2006, has become a reference, certainly, for the study of European Islam and the, the question of the integration of Muslim minorities in secular democracies. She also edited the 2015 Oxford Handbook of European Islam and coordinates a major web resource on Islam in Europe. She's been a member of the RPP Advisory Board an RPP working group since the very beginning, and we're very grateful for the wealth of expertise that she's brought to the initiative up to now, and of course, particularly on tonight's very timely topic. So please join me in welcoming Professor Jocelyne Cesari. Jocelyne. Thank you, Bill, for this very uh, kind introduction. Thank you, uh, everybody, for being here. Um, I have 15 minutes that I won't completely use because <laughs> it's a long time before you get to hear our speakers. I just want to say a few words on the topic on Islam tradition and resources for nonviolent conflict transformation. Um, I'm always happy when the angle to look at Islam is not about security and terrorism. <laughs> and um, unfortunately, that's the most common uh, outlook today on Islam, uh, not on all religions, on Islam in particular, for the obvious environment in which we live and even the unfortunate and very sad attacks that happened yesterday in London. So I understand the pressure uh, on the common citizens to um, try to understand why violence may be associated with Islam. And one thing that I always push forward is Islam, like all other religions, is multivocal. The text in itself can be used for the good and for the bad. Um, and I all, always think of, you are from South Africa, and I remember visiting Farid Isaac a long time ago, uh, there, and we were discussing about his approach to the Quran, and he said, you know, what bothers me the most is that the verses I have used to mobilize across religion and faith tradition against apartheid for a just cause, or what we consider the just cause, the same verses are now used by the young people who go and fight the jihad in Iraq and Syria. So that's, that's the issue we are facing now. And how do we put into perspective and context, indeed, the revealed text and its interpretation? And, and the other thing that is important is not always to think. And we have this tradition in American academia to give the priority to ideas over context. So we think that ideas change the world. 
I'm an historian and a sociologist, and I also think that historical, political context change ideas. And if we do not pay attention to this interaction between the two, we end up indeed trying to find in the Quran the responses to the ISIS situation today. And I'm not saying that the Quran doesn't matter. It does, but it matters in a specific political historical context. And uh, I think that this is not specific to Islam. There is no need to put Islam in this, reg in this uh, regard or respect in, in a sort of exceptional situation. It is much more what happened to all religion. And I see that some of you teach on, on conflict. I've been trying to show students that the just war tradition and the classical concept of war in Islam have more in common than we think they have historically. But things happen, like the Westphalian international system that change the ideas, not the other way around. And, and I'm talking about religious ideas. And I think this is this kind of continuous interaction that we need to pay attention to. And I'm very happy that our two speakers tonight are going to help us do that. So let me introduce them. I'm going to introduce both of you. Then you will have your, your, uh, the floor for open, and then we open for questions and uh, remarks. So Dr. Hay Rashid Omar earned an MA and PhD in religious studies for the University of Cape Town, South Africa, and an MA in peace studies from Notre Dame, Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, where he is now core faculty member. Dr. Omar's research and teaching focus on the roots of religious violence and the potential of religion for constructive social engagement and interreligious peace building. He is a co-author with David Scheidester and others of Religion in Public Education, Options for a New South Africa, published in 1994, a contributor to the Oxford Handbook of Religion, Conflict and Peace Building, published at Oxford University Press in 2015, and a contributor to the Encyclopedia of Islam and the Muslim World at Macmillan 2016. During Notre Dame spring semester, Dr. Omar teaches a popular course on the Islamic ethics of war and peace, as well as peace study courses. For the remainder of the year, he serves as field research advisor to Crocs Institute's master's student in Cape Town, South Africa. And in addition to being a university-based researcher and teacher, Dr. Omar serves as imam at the Claremont Main Road Mosque in Cape Town, South Africa. How do you do this from Crocs to <laughs> a trustee of the Healing of Memories Institute in South Africa, a member of the Interfaith Council for Ethics Education, Arigatu International in Japan, and an advisory board member for critical investigations into humanitarianism in Africa. Afra Jalabi is a member of the Syrian Nonviolence Movement. She is the vice chair of the board of the Day After Association, a Syrian NGO that created a transitional plan with a group of Syrian academics and human rights activists for post-regime Syria. She is currently doing a PhD at Concordia University in the Department of Religion, 
writing a dissertation on Quranic hermeneutics and nonviolence in Islam. She has been working closely with her uncle, Jawad Saeed, a prominent Islamic scholar who has been writing on peace and nonviolence from a Muslim perspective since the 60s. She is a frequent lecturer on issues related to Islam, nonviolence, and gender, and was the first woman of an Arab background to lead public prayers and give Juma and Aid sermons. She has participated in many international conferences and appeared in Arab American and Canadian media. Mrs. Jalabi is also a member of the editorial board of the Journal of Law and Religion at Emline University and has worked as a columnist in the Arab press for the last 16 years. Before the Syrian revolution, she was a signatory to the Damascus Declaration and was one of the founding members of the Syrian National Council. She has a master's degree in journalism from Carleton University and a BA in anthropology and political science from McGill University. So I now give the floor to Dr. A. Rashid Omar for 30 minutes. Good evening, and assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you. Muslims are currently living through one of the most challenging periods in their history. Islamophobia and hate crimes against Muslims are at an all-time high. And never before in recent history has the Muslim commitment to a more peaceful and a just world being challenged as it is today. Against this backdrop, locating an Islamic definition or perspective of peace and recognizing the role of Muslims in conflict transformation and peace building is critical. It is a task that I and an increasing number of other Muslim scholars and activists have undertaken and we continue to undertake with, with this with great passion and commitment since, as we heard in the introduction, it counterbalances the current preoccupation with Islam, violence, and radical terrorism. A number of questions undergird my research on the role of Islam, conflict transformation, and strategic peace building. How consonant or disparate is an Islamic definition of peace from that of the leading perspectives in this little sub-discipline called peace studies? What are some of the key Islamic teachings that may enable and support conflict transformation and strategic peace building? And how are these traditional Islamic resources being employed in contemporary Muslim peace building initiatives. My paper addresses the above questions and concludes with some modest proposals that may create conditions for the recovery 
of the Islamic principles of peace and making it part of the fabric of contemporary Muslim culture. I argue that the complex justice struggles in which many Muslim social movements have been engaged during the past century and more have led to the erosion of the core Islamic value of rahmah or compassion and consequently a deficit of peace. It might be expedient to begin with the definition of peace. Like the end state itself, a consensus definition of peace is, of course, elusive. However, the Islamic perspective is perhaps best compared to that of scholars in the field of peace studies. A number of contending interpretations of peace exist in the literature. And these disparate definitions of peace can be plotted on a horizontal, or a horizontal graph with the one axis as we call in peace studies, called negative peace, and on the other side, what is known as positive peace. Negative peace has also been described as a minimalist definition of peace, and positive peace as a maximalist definition of peace. Negative peace, in fact, often when we speak about peace, we mean negative peace is simply the absence of war or direct physical violence. The alternative to this hegemonic and conventional understanding of peace is that of positive peace. The idea of positive peace originated in the work of a Norwegian peace scholar called Johan Galtum and stresses the recognition of a more indirect, a more latent and frequently hidden and insidious form of violence called structural violence. This violence, or this form of violence, is often less dramatic. It often works slowly, eroding human values and eventually human lives. Violence, it is argued, can be built into the very structure of the socio-political, economic, and cultural institutions of a society, and has the effect of denying people important rights such as economic opportunity, social and political equality, and human dignity. When children die of starvation or malnutrition in a world of plenty, a kind of violence is taking place. Similarly, when human beings suffer from preventable diseases, when they are denied a basic education, housing, the right to freely practice their religion, an opportunity to raise a family, or to participate in their own governance, a kind of violence is taking place, even when no direct physical violence or blood is being shed on the streets. This nuanced understanding of peace as a substantive value has been increasingly embraced among scholars, religious leaders, civil society, state actors, and even at the level of the United Nations. With this understanding, the practice of peace building extends beyond the laying down of arms to include addressing and transforming the underlying conditions of structural violence and social cleavages. 
The sought-after end state is best described by two very prominent peace study scholars, John Paul Lederach and Scott Appleby, as just peace. So they've a neologism, this is a new word, just peace. This is the way they define it, and I quote, a dynamic state of affairs in which the reduction and management of violence and the achievement of social and economic justice are undertaken as mutual reinforcing dimensions of constructive change. Sustainable transformation of conflict requires more than the necessary problem-solving associated with mediation, negotiated settlements, and other ele elements of what is known as conflict resolution. It requires the redress of legitimate grievances and the establishment of new relations characterized by equality and fairness according to the dictates of human dignity and the common good." Unquote. An examination of the Islamic concept of peace reveals that it is closer to that of positive peace. This is underscored by the strong emphasis, the most primary source of Muslim guidance, the glorious Quran, places on justice as a substantive value. The Quran uses two terms interchangeably to refer to justice, adl and qist. And in the verse which we have from Surah Al-Ma'idah, chapter 5, verse number 8, very famous, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, O believers, kunu qawwameena bil qist, shuwada'a lillah. Stand up as witnesses to justice for God. And I will continue uh, speaking about that. Adl and qist, basically meaning to give someone his or her full portion. In fact, as you would see from this verse, the Quran regards acts for justice as being the closest thing to righteousness and piety. I'dilu, it's an imperative. Be just, all of you. It is the closest thing to piety, to God consciousness. This strong emphasis on justice had led many jurists, like the renowned Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyyah, who died in the year 1350 of the Common Era, to argue that justice is the raison d'etre of the establishment of religion. In fact, there is a verse in the Quran, in Surah Al-Hadid, uh, where the Quran declares, وَلَقَدْ أَرْسَلْنَا رُسُولَنَا بِالْبَيِّنَاتِ We have sent many messengers with clear signs. وَأَنزَلْنَا مَعَهُمُ الْكِتَابَ وَالْمِيزَانِ and with them, a scripture and a balance, so that you may establish justice among humankind. The Islamic concept of peace is thus integrally related to the struggle for justice, and it resonates well with the exhortation of Pope Paul VI in 1972 when he said, and I quote, if you want peace, work for justice, unquote. It is a clarion call to redress legitimate grievances. 
Now against this backdrop, I would like to propose the following definition of peace from a Muslim perspective. And I quote, Islam contends that positive peace, the establishment of conditions of just relationships and non-exploitative social structures is more conducive to the attainment of social sustainable peace and upholding the principle of non-violence, unquote. So you see two things. Just relationships, interpersonal relationships, but also non-exploitative social structures. So it's holding those two things um, together. Yet as important as justice may be in the comprehensive matrix of Islamic values, I would argue it is not the preeminent one. Rather, Ar-Rahman, the compassionate one, one of the names of God, is undoubtedly the most important attribute of God in Islam. It could be the equivalent of the Christian understanding of God as love. We could say Allah is Rahmah. God is compassion, mercy, and tenderness. One of the most well-known Quranic verses with which Muslims commence every action is Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. In the name of God, ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, the most compassionate and the most merciful. In fact, ar-Rahman and ar-Rahim comes from the same root, Rahim, which means womb, which, from which the word Rahma, or compassion, mercy, and tenderness is derived. Compassion is so central to God's existence that it embraces all that exists in the universe, Quran 40, verse 7. And the Quran describes the Prophet Muhammad's central mission as rahmatan lil alameen, as a source of compassion, mercy, and tenderness to all that exists in the universe, Quran 21, 107. I would therefore argue that a struggle for justice, if you will, a jihad, meaning a struggle for a commendable aim, a struggle for justice or a jihad that claims Islamic legitimacy must locate itself within the ethos of compassion, even over that of justice. The numerous struggles for social justice, starting with the anti-colonial wars of the first half of the 20th century, the watershed Afghan war against the Soviet invasion in the 1980s, and the continuing struggles against secular autocratic elites in the post-colonial period that have engaged many parts of the world with Muslim-majority populations have inevitably led to justice being the key, hermeneutical key, through which Muslims view Islam. So I'm saying this context, as we heard earlier, is important as it has shaped uh, Muslim thinking. So I would say that this obsession with justice, and of course contextually driven and rightly so, has led to an erosion and the exclusion of the central Islamic concept of compassion and rahmah. So the kind of 
wanton violence into which many Muslim struggles for justice have degenerated can in large measure be attributed to this phenomenon. Justice struggles without compassion. Without compassion, without rahmah, struggles for justice invariably end up mimicking the oppressive orders against which they revolt. And compassion without justice likely leads only to more of the status quo of political, cultural, and social upheaval and pervasive overt structural violence against Muslims by despotic regimes. Ironically, it is precisely here that the crisis of contemporary Muslims is located and consequently where I believe the challenge for a credible project on Muslim peace building resides. How can the central Islamic concept such as compassion be recovered and reinvigorated such that it once again becomes part of the fabric of contemporary Muslim culture? This is indeed the critical challenge facing contemporary Muslims. The good news is, thankfully, such a critical endeavor is already underway in many parts of the world. So in the second part of my presentation, I would like to identify two such contemporary examples of Muslim peace building. And from the continent I, I know best, that is Africa. One comes from Central Africa, from Rwanda, and the second from Morocco. I would like to share with you the relatively unknown story of the heroic, peaceful role of a very small Muslim community in Rwanda during the 1994 genocide and the consequent flourishing of Islam and Muslims in that part of the world during the past two decades. Again, a story that is uh, unknown to many of us. Interesting that some of these stories, why we need to know why they are not known. As I speak to you about this, you'll also discover how Christianity and the Catholic Church was deeply implicated, but as in my case in South Africa, where Christianity, the Dutch Reformed Church, was deeply implicated in providing biblical justification for the structural violence of apartheid, not known. If those were Muslims in South Africa or Rwanda, everyone would never have forgotten. Um, so we can see the, the bias in hegemonic discourse. During the past 20 years, much of course has been written about the causes of the Rwandan genocide and the evidences against the thousands of perpetrators, perpetrators prosecuted at local Kachacha courts and at the International Criminal Court, a criminal tribunal for Rwanda. These have shed great light on the circumstances and the motivations that led to the atrocities uh, in that country. Uh, in 1994. One of the most distressing research findings and indictments of the, on the Rwandan genocide has been particularly the role of the Catholic and other Christian churches in aiding and abetting the genocide. 
At the time of the genocide in Rwanda in 1994, the Catholic Church counted 94, 62% of Rwandans among its adherents. Together with the Protestants, Christians constituted well over 80% of the Rwandese population. And a colleague of mine at the University of Notre Dame, a Catholic priest and a theologian by the name of Father Dr. Emmanuel Katangole, describes the role of the Rwandan church as follows, and I quote, the most Christian country in Africa became the site of its worst genocide, unquote. The evidence of Christian complicity in the Rwandan genocide is currently still vividly depicted in the numerous churches that have been converted into genocide memorial sites throughout the country. So you, you had um, Catholic priests and nuns who were also uh, Hutus inviting Tutsis to find refuge in the church. And once the church is full, they would invite uh, the Hutus to bulldoze the church and to slaughter uh, innocents. You can go there and see these churches are uh, still memorials to the genocide. In contradistinction to the role of Christian priests and churches during the 1994 Rwanda, the role of the Muslim community and its mosques or masajid were praiseworthy. Muslims numbered around between 2 and 5% of the total population in Rwanda in 1994. And they were constituted by roughly an equal number of Hutus, a tribal group, and Tutsis. Muslims were both physically as well as symbolically marginalized in Rwanda. In fact, the Muslims were banished to live in one of the worst neighborhoods of the capital, Kigali. The area was called Niamirambo, the place of the dead. That is where you would find um, the Muslims. During my visit to Niamirambo Masjid, we were informed by the Imam that many of the mosques in that neighborhood were one of the few places that Tutsis, both Muslims as well as non-Muslims, could find refuge and safety in Muslim houses of worship and, in fact, in Muslim homes. And the Rwandan Imams employed the glorious Quran to actively preach against the genocide and Muslims bravely fought of militia who tried to attack Tutsis seeking refuge in mosques. The courageous Muslim role in condemning and refusing to participate in the 1994 Rwandan genocide is widely recognized, of course, in Rwanda itself. As a consequence, Islam and Muslims are currently being recognized in Rwanda like never before in their history. For example, despite their small number, the post-genocide Rwandan government has recognized Eid al-Fitr, one of the big celebrations of Muslims at the end of Ramadan, as one of the four official religious holidays, and they're less, you know, over 2%. Muslims also formed a key constituent member of an interfaith commission for Rwanda, which seeks to promote unity and reconciliation by supporting activities such as aid programs aimed at reconciling genocide survivors release prisoners and detain his families. The largely unknown peaceful role of Rwandan Muslims during the midst of the 1994 genocide, I believe, is an embodiment of a powerful teaching found in the glorious Quran in Surah Al-Hujurat, 
chapter 49, ayah verse number 13, where humankind is exhorted as follows. So I, I, I you know, it's, it's a way in which Muslims, have, you know, you don't find this in the Quran, but an embodiment in contemporary times. Ya ayyuhan nas, o humankind, inna khalaqanakum min dhakarin wa untha, we created you into male and female, wa ja'annakum shu'uban wa qaba'il, and we fashioned you into nations and tribes, lita'arafu, so that you may come to recognize, to know each other. Inna akramakum aindallahi atqaakum, the most honored of you in the sight of God are those with the God consciousness, the best and righteous conduct. Inna allaha alimun khabir, God is knower and aware of all things. This is an example of this reaching out beyond ethnic, tribal, and other divisions, even gender divisions, to come to know each other. Uh, I have described this ta'aruf as Islam beyond tolerance, not merely tolerating, but reaching out. When you acknowledge and recognize the other, you are in fact recognizing and developing God consciousness. This Quranic verse enjoins human beings to celebrate gender, cultural, and other forms of diversity by way of ta'aruf, recognition and affirmation of each other through intimate knowledge, not mere toleration. Through this verse, the Quran teaches that differences among humankind are incidental and negative, are not incidental and negative, but rather that human di diversity represents a God-world basic factor of of human existence. There are many verses in the Quran um, that supports um, such a view. If it was the will of God, we would have been one community. If it had been the will of God, everyone could have been believers. This is a verse of the Quran. So the Quranic concept of ta'aruf is an alternative vision to that of what I call the tolerance paradigm. And represents for me the litmus test of good religion. Not how much I can tolerate the other. But rather to the extent to which I am able to embrace the other. As an extension of another self. The second example is that of I'lan Marrakesh. The Marrakesh Declaration. In January 2016, over 300 Muslim scholars and interfaith leaders gathered in Marrakesh, Morocco. The aim of the Marrakesh Conference was to reaffirm the key principles of a very important traditional Islamic document that comes this time not from the Quran, but from the Sunnah, from the practice of the Prophet ﷺ, peace be upon him called Sahifatul Madina, the charter or the constitution of Madina, and to discuss ways of recovering this 1,400 document, recovering its principles to promote peace in our contemporary world. And the conference was aptly titled, The Rights of Religious Minorities in Predominantly Muslim Lands. It might be expedient to very briefly reflect on the significance of Sahifatul Madina as a resource for peace building. When the Prophet Muhammad migrated to Madina, you know, the first 13 years was non-violence, and then he made the migration um, after, you know, losing his um, 
his supporters, and he was you know, threatened, and he left to a city uh, 200 miles to the north called Medina in, in the migration. And when he reached Medina, he developed this, what is called a social contract between all of its diverse tribal and religious community. This historic document embraced interfaith harmony by affirming the dignity, the citizenship, and the freedom of religion of both Jews, Christians, and other tribes living in the city-state of Medina. Sahifatul Medina contained a set of clear guidelines that regulated inter-tribal and inter-religious relations between the various religious communities and tribes in Medina and was in instrumental in bringing an end to persistent conflicts and enhancing interfaith harmony, relatively speaking, at that time. Often when we look at history, we, you know, we're guilty of what is called anachronism. We look at from contemporary eyes. But if you look at you know, what Sahifatul Madinah did in that period, it produced, relatively speaking, a much better um, interfaith harmony and peaceful situation. Sahifatul Madinah calls for mutual cooperation, ta'awun, between the Jews of Medina and the Muslims by affirming, by affirming and this is, Indeed, mutual advice and consultation should exist between them, the Muslims and the Jews. Over the past 1400 years, Muslims have tried to live up to and have striven to emulate this noble example, exemplified in Sahifatul Madinah, by treating Jews, Christians, as well as other people of faith with kindness and justice. At various epochs in our history, we have been very successful, and at other times, sadly, we have not treated people of other faiths with great kindness and justice and establishing interfaith harmony. And currently, we are living, unfortunately, in such a period. Again, if we are guilty of anachronism and we see the dire plight of non-Muslim minorities currently in many Muslim-majority countries, we may think this has always been the case. Whereas, in fact, the history, in fact, proves the, the opposite. That, you know, for example, in Muslim Spain, Jews and other communities, relatively speaking, you know, had a much better status than in many other uh, countries. In particular, Christian minorities living in Muslim majority have lamented the fact that they are not afforded full citizenship and religious freedom. In light of this difficult time in the history of Christian-Muslim relations that we are currently living through, the outcome of the Marrakesh Conference comes as a great source of solace and inspiration at this time. The Marrakesh Declaration is powerful and inspiring, and it makes the following clarion call for peace, and I quote, We call upon representatives of the various religions, sects, and denominations to confront all forms of religious bigotry, vilification, and denigration of what people hold sacred, as well as all speech that promote hatred and bigotry." Unquote. And finally, the conference affirmed that it is unconscionable to employ religion for the purpose of aggressing upon the rights of religious minorities in Muslim countries. Unquote. Now remember, this comes from some of the most senior Muslim leaders, and I think they know where they were speaking to. The Marrakesh Conference communique is commendable and timely. It is a useful example, again, of recovering a traditional Islamic resource for peaceful coexistence in the contemporary period. I urge you to read the full text of the declaration, and it can be found on marrakeshdeclaration.org. I would like to conclude 
with four modest proposals for Muslim peace building. First and foremost, Muslims must not become weary. They must never tire from stating over and over again, clearly and unequivocally, that acts of wanton violence and barbarism are contrary to the teachings of Islam. And of course, the news media must do more to make sure that such voices are heard. Often when I say this, they say, this is the first time we hear yeah. In Islamic ethics, the end does not justify the means. Religious extremism has no virtue in Islam and has been unequivocally condemned by the Prophet Muhammad. He is reported in a hadith to have declared thrice, Halakal mutanatti'oon, halakal mutanatti'oon, halakal mutanatti'oon, that the extremists, they shall perish. For contemporary Muslims, this condemnation requires an acknowledgement. No matter how painful it is, and despite the fact that we know that there is a discourse out there which doesn't treat us kindly, despite all of that, we must acknowledge, no matter how painful it is, that we do have extremists, mutatarrifun, within our ranks. Second, Despite growing attention from both Muslim and non-Muslim scholars, there is a dire need for more rigorous academic studies of the potentially fertile sources of non-violence and peace-building in Islam and Muslim societies. A search on the Library of Congress subject catalogue for resources on Islam, non-violence and peace produces less than a dozen entries. A similar search for Islam and violence, I would urge you not to print it out, you will not have enough paper. It is palpable that Islam and Muslim societies is a rather neglected area of peace studies and peace research. And of course, Muhammad Abu Nimr wrote one of our pioneering books in this field called Nonviolence and Peacebuilding in Islam, published in 2013. He argues that by shifting the emphasis from war and violence to peace and conflict transformation in the study of Islam and Muslim societies, it can contribute significantly to buttressing and reinvigorating courageous peace initiatives like the ones I have mentioned to you that are already in progress in many different Muslim settings and continents. Not surprisingly, despite the paucity of publications directly on this topic, the lived reality of Muslims and conflict transformation and peacefulness is rich and includes initiatives from diverse cultures. Third, there is an urgent need for the nurturing and training of a new critically-minded class of ulama, Muslim religious scholars. The established Muslim religious leaders in countries such as Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Pakistan have abandoned their role as the moral conscious of their societies by refusing to speak out coherently on the human rights violations and injustices that permeate their countries. Many of them, while speaking out apologetically against certain forms of injustices against Muslims, are providing religious legitimacy to despotic and oppressive regimes. Moreover, nonviolent civil resistance campaigns are not tolerated in many Muslim-majority countries, and progressive religious leaders are either incarcerated or exiled. And you hear more of that from my colleague Afra Jalabi about, about that. In light of this finding, 
as well as the existing crisis in Muslim religious leadership, it is critically to support the emergence of a new generation of Muslim scholars who are well-versed in both the traditional Islamic sciences, in, you know, graduates of madaris, of madrasas, as well as the modern social sciences. Lastly, peace advocates need to support the call for a public debate concerning the most effective means to counteract Muslim and other forms of extremism. You know, a colleague of mine is now speaking as a result of uh, you know, the elections in both this country and in Europe of the mainstreaming of extremism in the West under our noses without us recognizing this. So it's not only Muslim extremism that we need to fight, but all other forms of extremism. Interreligious activists from all faiths need to join the many voices all over the world that are questioning the wisdom of the current strategy pursued in the war on terrorism, now called radical Islamic terrorism, and the injustices that it wreaks. They also need to back the call for a serious reassessment concerning the controversial United States foreign policy, both in the Middle East and elsewhere, that abets authoritarian regimes in the Middle East, and is uncritical, and too often provides unilateral support for the present policies of the state of Israel. And then regarding that state as being a divine state that cannot be criticized. And if you do, you might be called an anti-Semite. The current political environment is not seeking to address or ameliorate the root causes of violence experienced by, among many Muslims. On the contrary, it generates the very conditions that favor extremism. I want to then conclude that the challenge of peace for Muslims in particular is to develop a theology of healing and embrace ta'aruf, so eloquently described in the verse I quoted to you from Surah Al-Hujarat, chapter 49, ayah verse number 13. I beg your patience as I recite it in Arabic as a way also of illustrating to you how the chanting of the Quran is a wonderful traditional resource of producing, producing internal sakina, tranquility, and peace, not only for ourselves, but for society. Ya ayyuhannas, inna khalaqnakum min zakarin wa unsa. وَجَعَلْنَاكُمْ شُعُوبًا وَقَبَائِلَ لِتَعَارَفُوا إِنَّ أَكْرَمَكُمْ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ أَتْقَاكُمْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ عَلِيمٌ خَبِيرٌ O humankind, we have created you into a male and a female and fashioned you into nations and tribes so that you may come to know each other, not despise one another. The most honored of you in the sight of God are those who display the best conduct. And God is all-knowing, all-aware. Thank you for your patience in listening to me.
Good evening. Assalamu alaikum. Um, I would like to thank the team that organized this and invited me. Um, I really appreciate the detailed correspondence between me, Elizabeth, and, and Ash. Thank you so much. And for all of you to, com to come out tonight. Um, I would like to talk about um, something <coughs> radical tonight. It shouldn't be surprising, right? Because any time we discuss Islam, we always talk about radical Islam. And many times, I'm, when people introduce me, they introduce me as, um, oh, she's moderate. Being Muslim, you need to always be hyphenated. She's liberal, she's um, moderate. And I tend to be a little bit afraid of the word moderate because it kind of makes me feel or think about mediocrity. And I find myself being drawn to radical because I am very much interested in radical nonviolence and in radical feminism, and in radical honesty, in radical few things. So tonight I will talk about something that you don't hear much about. It's about the capacity, not just of Islam, but of any religion to manifest a whole array of behaviors and experiences. We see a spectrum of, as uh, Rashid tonight referred to, we see a spectrum when it comes to religion. We see radical violence and we see radical nonviolence in our religious traditions. All of them, by the way, no exception. Our histories are rich with layers of different, a diversity of interpretation and interaction and responses to our religious traditions. So I would like to talk a little bit about the current moment, the variety of these Islamic responses. And I would like to talk about some forgotten figures or overlooked stories. I would like to talk about the forgotten legacy of Badshah Khan, Abdul Ghaffar Khan. And I would also like to talk about Quranic hermeneutics of nonviolence that is not at the forefront at the moment in the debate on Islam and violence. And I would also, towards the end, would like to discuss a little bit um, the nonviolent movement of Syria, especially in the first phase of the Syrian revolution and how it started. I will not be able to get into too much detail in all these sections, but it will give you a glimpse. We will travel across time and space. The reason I'm interested in the diversity of the way our religious traditions um, display uh, these kind of experiences, the diversity that they display, is because it shows us that um, religious traditions are not static entities that produce one unified response. We can't say Islam does this, or Christianity does this, or Buddhism does this, as if there is some sort of a creature called Buddhism or Islam. Um, there has been many religious scholars who debunked and deconstructed this way of treating religion and, and the way our metaphors actually convey this kind of static understanding of, of religion, even in mainstream media. When a journalist asks, 
does Islam promote violence? You wonder, so where is that Islam? There are Muslims who understand Islam and who respond to Islam. There are Christians who understand Christianity. And throughout history, they interacted with their understanding of their religious traditions in a variety of ways. And so there are concepts that impact people, but people, as it was mentioned earlier, people impact these traditions. It's a far more dynamic, complex process that happens that where you cannot say Islam does this or Christianity does that, where Islam is a religion of peace or a religion of violence. All our religious traditions are capable of producing either. And I think it's good to always remind ourselves of this capacity. So generally, you all hear about the capacity of Islam to produce radical violence. And so tonight, I want to talk about the other side, where Islam has the capacity also, the Islamic principles and the Islamic values, the encounter with Islamic scriptures and Islamic history has the capacity to produce radical nonviolence. So I would like to start with going a little bit to the beginning of the 20th century. So if somebody told you that there has been one nonviolent army in human history, and it was an official army trained in the arts and skills and tools of nonviolence, would you think that army large army of 100,000 soldiers was going to be Muslim? Probably not, but that is the case. The only nonviolent army that existed in human history was a Muslim nonviolent history that was inspired by Islamic ideas, by the Quran and by the Hadith. And it was founded by Abdul Ghaffar Khan I call him the forgotten hero because tonight we are in search of the lost heroes of the forgotten ones. By the time he was 20, Abdul Ghaffar Khan, he was so interested in ideas of reform and he started seeing that the tribal code of his people in, Afga in modern day Afghanistan, his tribes lived in what was known as the Khyber Pass, very difficult terrain under British rule with competition by the Russian forces at the time. And so during his youth, he noticed that the tribal code of honor was making um, the culture around him very prone to violence, and they had vengeance killings. So he was very much alarmed by that. As a young man, he was actually drawn to understanding his religious tradition. And he wanted to come with solutions to the malaise and plight of his people. And so he started seriously um, applying himself and studying Islamic scripture, but not in a scholarly fashion because he had to help his father actually um, tend to their business and their agriculture business in the area. He wanted to go and abroad and continue his education in England. He couldn't do that. So uh, by the time he was 20, he became very much interested in the idea of education as being the solution to the plight of, of uh, the, uh, the Pashtun tribes. And he started going literally from village to village, establishing schools, and with an emphasis to include women in, in, in education. And this was in 1910. And he was actually focusing on hygiene, building wells, cleaning up roads, planting trees, creating schools. 
and with an emphasis to gain the population, the population's trust, the tribal trust, to actually end violence. And it was inspired by his understanding of Islam. And he says, and he has done some, um, we have some of his writings and some of his, his speeches, um, but his um, legacy is more really his, his action and his lived tradition. So he, in, in one of his writings, he said that, to me, nonviolence has come to represent a panacea for all the evils that surround my people. Therefore, I am devoting all my energies towards the establishment of a society that would be based on its principles of truth and peace. peace. And his, his interest in, in truth being the power that would move a people was Islamically inspired. He later became associated with Gandhi given their common interest in nonviolence. Several scholars who actually studied uh, Abdul Ghaffar Khan point out that his inspiration for nonviolence came as a result of his encounter with the uh, primary sources of Islamic scripture and hadith. There was a particular hadith that he was fond of that he repeated in his, in his speeches. And the hadith by the Prophet Muhammad goes as this, whenever violence enters into something, it disgraces it. It disgraces it. Whenever gentleness enters something, it graces it. God bestows on account of gentle conduct what he does not bestow on account of violent conduct. He liked particularly this hadith, and he would, he, would, he would use it. So initially, what he did is that after establishing these, these schools, uh, they started establishing some small um, form of political organizing. They called them the civil councils. Initially, he was not very much interested in resistance, because he really believed in reform as a way to deal with the British, rather than into going into open confrontation with them. But what happened is that the British policy towards the Pashtun was very brutal. And even though when they tried organizing their political councils, there was so much resistance by the British that they did not get the kind of sovereignty that other parts of India was getting. Instead, what they got was something that the Brits at the time called the forward policy. And the forward policy basically meant that the Pashtun would be would be treated exceptionally, that there would be exceptional uh, laws that apply to the Pashtun. Why was that? Because they were brutes. And with brutes, you only deal through brutal means. And so here, there is, um, sorry, there is um, a quote by one of the officers who was one of those people who advocated the forward policy. And he wrote, back in reporting um, about the Pashtun. He said, with savage tribes to whom there is no right but might, the only course open to the British as regards humanity as well as policy is to make all suffer. Indeed, if objection be taken to the nature of punishment inflicted as repugnant, of to, as repugnant to civilization, the answer is that savages cannot be met and checked by civilized warfare and that to spare their houses, crops would be to leave them unpunished and therefore unrestrained. In short, civilized warfare is inap inap inapplicable in this case. And I would like to remind you that the Pashtun are the current day Taliban, and in the last administration under Obama, they actually were uh, subjected to a severe form of drone, war uh, drone warfare. Um, 
justified, not through these exact terms, but slightly more civilized terms in the war against terror. It's a, it's a region that has been brutalized for a very long time. And without taking into account the amount of fire that is unleashed into these parts of the world, we will not also understand the amount of radicalization that is coming out of these areas. I once heard Edward Said say that if you take into account the amount of fire unleashed into these areas of third world countries, particularly with Muslim majority countries, and the taking of their resources and their land, he said, what you'll find surprising is not the violence that's coming out, but how little it is. The last two days, actually, through a drone warfare, there were civilian areas in Syria that were also bombed, a mosque and a civilian neighborhood that caused the death of, of many people. This just happened two days ago. And of course, these are areas that are now becoming quite radicalized. Um, Khan, despite all this brutal policy and forward policy, responded with something different. He was very inspired by his reading of the example of the prophet in Mecca. And he decided eventually with the pleas of his people that he will do something. And he came up with the idea that they would use nonviolence combined with the resistance strategy to deal with the British. In one of his famous speeches before forming the army, he told his people, I'm going to give you such a weapon that the police and the army will not be able to stand against it. It is the weapon of the prophet, but you're not aware of it. That weapon is patience and righteousness. No power on earth can stand against it. When you go back to your villages, tell your brothers that there is an army of God and its weapon is patience. Ask your brothers to join the army of God. Endure all hardships. If you exercise patience, victory will be yours. And so this was the army. They started in 1929. They had 500 recruits. And within a few years, they grew to 100,000 soldiers, completely trained. They had platoons and brigades. And they also had a lot of women. Khan insisted on the participation of women in his army. He asked. Um, Afghan women to come from behind the burqa, the burqa and to participate in the civil councils and in, in his schools and in the army. Um, the the Khudai Khidmatyar, literally meaning the servants of God, came and gave a pledge to join this army. Badshah Khan, as he was known, um, was a respected figure and uh, among his community. But I think what, what really um, was very special about, about Abdul Ghaffar Khan, aside from his really interesting reading of, his, of, of the Islamic sources, was his ability to sublimate the honor code of his tribes to something very powerful that gave them one of the most staunch commitments to being nonviolent. Even Gandhi actually said that he had never seen such committed people to nonviolence. Um, 
I will read a few of the um, of the lines of the pledge that a Pathan would sign before joining this army. I am a servant of God, Khodai Khatmatyar. And as God needs no service, serving his creatures is serving him. I promise to serve humanity in the name of God. I promise to refrain from violence and from taking revenge. I will not read all of them, I'll read just a few to give you an idea. I promise to live a simple life, to practice virtue and to refrain from evil. I promise to devote at least two hours a day to social work. I shall expect no reward for my services. I shall be fearless and be prepared for any sacrifice. All my efforts shall be to please God and not for any show or gain. And this is how they signed. And the Pathan having this amazing commitment to honor, once they signed this, historically speaking, there had not been a people who were as committed to nonviolence. Um, there, there are several studies on, on this movement. And I encourage you to do a little bit of research because there are incredible stories about these soldiers. A lot of them were brutally killed by the British, but many more were killed by the Pakistani regime afterwards, after the partition. Abdul Ghaffar Khan spent, he lived um, 98 years. He was a tall man and lived a long life, but he spent 30 years of his life in prison between under some of them were under British rule and some of them were under Pakistani rule because Khan was against the partition like Gandhi. And his, the army pretty much disappeared because many of them after um, it lasted for 30 years, it was very instrumental in liberating India. Gandhi acknowledged that India would not have been liberated without the Khudai Khutmatyar. But we don't know much about them and Khan is pretty much a forgotten figure both in India and in the Muslim world, for a variety of reasons. But he is as large as Gandhi, if not more, because his army was disciplined, it was institutional, and it was instrumental in freeing India, and it played a huge role. And it was religiously inspired and spiritually committed. And so this is an interesting history where we, where we see that we tend to overlook certain major, major events. And um, there has been a documentary done by the Canadian Terry McLuhan, yes, the daughter of Marshall McLuhan. She gave it almost 20 years of her life, and it wasn't easy to sell to mainstream um, movie theaters. She's in the process of trying to sell it to some network. I invite the Harvard community to, to actually invite her, host her for a private screening and a discussion of, of the film, and she will be able to tell you more. Uh, she went, uh, when she started doing the documentary, in search of perhaps people who knew members of the Khudai Khidmatyar. And they told her, oh, none of them are left. They're very old and all of them have died. Except that when she went to some of the villages where they lived, she found some still alive. And when she found some of them, she said, one older man came to her. This was one of, one of them. This is an image from her movie. And tears were coming down his face that somebody actually knew about this amazing army and that, that they were still remembered. And, and she said, while crying, he went. And his outfit, his red outfit, they dressed in red to represent that they were willing to die but not kill. 
the color of blood, that they were willing to shed their blood for others. And so he, crying, he took out his outfit and dressed the way he used to be as a young man. And he was very touched that somebody came out searching for him. So she found, and of course now they are gone, but she was so um, touched that she was able to find the last of the Khudai khidmatgars. Uh, these are some of the images that to show you like really the, the prominence leadership of Khan during the anti-colonial campaign uh, with Gandhi here and with, with women. One of the things that really, really endear uh, Abdul Ghaffar Khan to me, although I am a big admirer of Gandhi, as you could tell, given my interest in nonviolence, was his feminism. For some reason, Khan was able to be um, almost a radical feminist, you could say. Um, and, and that is quite amazing. Um, so for him, um, he, he always said that there is nothing surprising in a Muslim or a Pathan like me subscribing to the creed of nonviolence. It is not a new creed. It was followed 1,400 years ago by the Prophet all the time he was in Mecca. And um, this is why I find um, the example of Khan, of Khan as historically significant because it is an encounter with tradition, with the prophetic example in which it produced one of the most radical manifestations that lasted for 30 years and accomplished um, huge political and social reforms, including the liberation of India, uh, by something that was spiritually uh, and religiously inspired. So now we move from Khan to somebody who had not even heard of Gandhi or Khan when he was studying as a young teenager at Al-Azhar University and was struck by the radically nonviolent passages of the Quran and he wanted to understand what was going on. This is the Syrian scholar Jaudat Said. He is in his 80s uh, now. Um, he was born um, 1938 in Syria in the Gol in a small village in the Golan Heights. Um, the major, uh, he has 15 books and hundreds of articles. He is the quiet, the quiet scholar. He's not the uh, leader of a huge army. Um, in fact, he had not been able to leave much impact on, on Syrian culture and politics, as you could tell. Uh, the country is now uh, drowning in, in a very, um, one of the biggest humanitarian disasters and violent conflicts. Uh, his home was destroyed in, um, three years ago in year 2012 and he left Syria. He's now based in Istanbul. And I learned today that he was actually giving a lecture in Istanbul. All his works are translated into Turkish and uh, he's been uh, actually lecturing in Turkey with of course translation. Uh, the major themes in his scholarship um, revolve around Quranic hermeneutics and nonviolence, social and political reform, philosophy of knowledge, and his famous idea of the death of war. He actually, although he um, has a certain systematic um, understanding and reading of the Islamic tradition as, um, as it relates to violence and nonviolence um, and the conditions of armed jihad, he also believes that 
with the advance of nuclear and atomic technology that humanity has come to the end of war and that war as an institution has died. It's a bit similar to Hannah Arendt's um, idea that when nuclear, he actually says it almost in, in the same way, that when the atomic bombs exploded, what exploded was not war but rather peace because it brought humanity to the end, to the dead end of the means of violence. Now it is just self-annihilation and um, war no longer yield results. Not that it yielded great results in the past, but now it actually has come to, to an end. And that he actually says that those who are engaged in warfare are the naive, or the ones who are taking advantage of the naivety of the naive. And he says liberal democracies are no longer engaged in, um, in warfare. They are engaged in proxy warfare where they are using the naive rebels of other nations to, to fight their interests. Um, this, of course, I mean, I came to the end of, of some of his ideas, but um, he started writing about nonviolence in, in the early 60s. One of the things that really promoted his thinking about nonviolence is um, the question about armed jihad. When he was at Al-Azhar around the age of 14 and 15, he says in some of his writings and lectures that a group of young people came to him and they said, why are we sitting here studying and writing exams? You know thoughts that come during exams. And they said, why don't we go to Palestine and do jihad and die for the cause of God? That would be the greatest thing to do. And he was studying at Al-Azhar and he really said, I wanted to find out what is really that God wants from us to put our energies and lives into building things and scholarship or in destruction. He wanted to find out, so he started reading the Quran. And before that, he said he had always been struck by certain passages in the Quran that struck him as radically pacifist or nonviolent. So taking this question to the Quran, he started coming up with a whole theory of nonviolence based on Islamic scripture. So one of the things that struck him is that, that the Quran, um, approaching to the, the reading of the Quran, does not yield results by reading it kind of like as a regular book. Because as we all know, it's not a linear book. It's a circular book with repetitive themes. So he wanted to find out the underlying moral structure of the Quran. What is this narrative about? What are the major themes of the Quran? What are the things that this book is concerned about? And what are the routes to salvation? So uh, one of the passages that, that he still uses and that struck him also at a young age is the, the divine project in creating humanity. The Quran places the, the, the story of um, the creation of humanity as a project when he announces to creation and to the angels that he says, oh, that I shall place a representative upon earth. But the angels are not too pleased and they object to that. They said, are you going to place upon, upon earth that who will spread corruption and spill blood. Two things, corruption and spilling blood. And in, in the Muslim tradition, it's fasad and safkidima. And fasad is usually connected in, in the Islamic tradition to economic corruption, which means it's a reference to economic disparities 
in economic inequalities and bloodshed follows that. And so Jodot was fascinated by that, but he was also fascinated that God's answer was kind of peculiar. God didn't say yes or no. God said, I know that which you know not. There's a potentiality. And Said has a good way of actually putting it. He says we are still uh, accomplishing and fulfilling the angel's predictions and objections um, about us, and we are not fulfilling God's knowing in us. Because God said, I know that which you know not. But following that later in Surah Al-Ma'idah, in Surah 5, what really one of the passages that, that he says that from a very young age struck him and haunted him was the passage that, that revolves around the, the two sons of Adam. It is similar to the Torah story, but is the, dif the difference with the Quranic version is that the story zooms into the, the dialogue of the two sons, and we hear what actually happens when the two sons of Adam face each other. And the Quran says, I can't read it as beautifully as you. فَتُقَبِّلَ مِنْ أَحَدِهِمَا وَلَمْ يُتَقَبَّلْ مِنَ الْآخَرِ قَالَ لَأَقْتُلَنَّكَ قَالَ إِنَّمَا يَتَقَبَّلُ اللَّهُ مِنَ الْمُتَّقِينَ So he says, the passage reads, relate to them the story of the two sons of Adam. They each presented an offering. It was accepted from one, but not from the other. And the first one said, I shall kill you. But then the other said, God accepts from those who repel wrong. Then the brother said, if you're, then he said, I shall kill you, the one whose offer was not accepted. So the brother said, if you raise your hand to kill me, I shall not raise my hand to kill you, for I fear the Lord of all worlds. And he kills him. And the Quranic story actually says that the brother who killed his brother was filled with regret and he repented to God. And so Saeed, at a young age, felt that the Quran was taking the side of the, the man who actually refused to defend himself and accepted to die. But of course, throughout his reading, he discovered that all the prophetic dialogues that happen with their people throughout the Quran are a representation of this story that ends up being a blueprint for the rest of the Quranic stories. All the prophets come as lone figures, challenging the authority of their own people, and the people in the Quran tell them, we shall stone you, we shall torture you if you don't come back to our ways. Or in other passages, we shall torment you, we shall exile you if you don't come back to the ways of our fathers. So Said noticed that the repetitive theme is that there's a lone prophet that comes facing a community, and a community that uses coercive measures in maintaining the status quo, the order. And the prophetic model is using the power of word on moral persuasion. How many minutes do I have left? I think you passed. Oh, I passed. OK, so I'm going to stop soon. Um, uh, I, I should have time to myself, sorry. So, so the... Um, so he said that all the stories follow this blueprint. And, and therefore, he, he read, he read the, the Quranic stories as not just as particular um, segments, but rather 
creating a tapestry of a nonviolent modality of social transforma transformation and political encounter. Um, I wanted, I will not have time, but this is Abdul Akram Saqqa, who actually I wasn't going to say much about him, but he is one also of the nonviolent Syrian leaders who has several books, who created a group who was not actually aware of Said's existence in Syria, considering the, the surveillance and the difficulty of communication. And he created actually a movement of both young men and women inside Syria that was active before the Syrian revolution. Uh, two of his students that are very famous in, in the Syrian culture at the moment are Yahya Sharbaji and Ghiyath Matar. Ghiyath Matar is the, um, the young man that was um, also the, the center of the documentary The Little Gandhi that was actually screened in some American cities. Uh, Yahya Sharbaji was his um, older friend who is in prison and um, he still um, is held in communicado, like we don't know anything about him. Um, this was one of the signs that appeared at the beginning of the Syrian revolution. I wanted to show this uh, poster because it represents that verse about if you stretch, if you raise your hand to kill me, I shall not raise my hand to kill you. It was used at the beginning during the nonviolent uh, phase of the Syrian revolution before it started arming. And recently you probably heard about the, uh, the winning of, of the Oscar of the documentary about the white helmets. This is one of the last remnants of this, the Syrian civil um, society activism in which young men who refuse to kill are joining the white helmets to, to, to work in rescue operation rather than in combat missions. And the verse, which is actually from the same surah as the verse about I will not raise my hand, uh, their logo, the group's logo, is whoever saves one life, says all of humanity, was on Time magazine and was also recited uh, during the Oscars. Um, I would like to end with Nabil Sharbaji because he's the young cousin of Yahya Sharbaji who was also instrumental in creating the civil councils and networks of Syria at the beginning of the revolution. He was a very committed uh, young man to nonviolence. He was a good musician, a good writer. He was a journalist by training. And um, we heard about his death in prison, possibly under torture two months ago, but it is said that he was killed in prison in 2015. Um, I use this image to, to end my presentation with because these movements have been, in my view, very successful even when they failed. Uh, Mary King in her book, uh, The Quiet Revolution, says that nonviolence, when it appears, no matter what happens to it, is a very successful phenomenon. That the fact that a group of people come around an idea and do something, regardless of the consequences, is in itself is an amazing success. Thank you. Um, I will now open the floor to the working group of the initiative. Uh, students have prepared questions. We have I think if I follow here the timing, we have like a good 25 minutes to do that. So the floor is yours. Please introduce yourself and, and ask questions.
questions. Assalamu alaikum. My name is Sidra. Thank you so much, both of you, and Dr. Sasari, for coming and joining us today. Um, and my co lead is. I'm Elise. Um, yeah, I'm also in the RPP working group. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Um, over the past year, we've noticed that Islam and the concept of, whether casually or formally, Islam, um, if it's oppressive or non oppressive, violent or non violent, has cropped up like throughout our colloquia. Uh, we, as Muslims, and even Islamic studies students, have found ourselves boxed into dichotomies, either affirming or defending principles of nonviolence in Islam, even within our own cohorts here at Harvard. We are very grateful and excited to have you here today, and we very, very much appreciate what you have to offer us. We're hoping that we can push our conversation beyond the premise of whether or not Islam is a religion of peace, and investigate deeper aspects of theology and praxis concerning nonviolence, as well as nonviolence in today's political climate. Dr. Omar's piece, Islam and Peace Building, offers Muslims four concrete strategies to promote justice and peace. Among them, he states a dire need for a new critically-minded ulama and for more think tanks and organizations to provide research to inform new policies. Alhamdulillah, we have organizations like ISPU and Al-Hibri Foundation who exist doing just that. Moreover, the fact that we are here today asking you questions and you're here today answering them is indicative of the fact that we have permeated somewhat the shell of structural violence that Khaltoun talks about that we're currently mired in. So um, to get to our question, um, we are seeking to address the dissonance between the institution of Islam in the academy and the praxis of Islam in the quotidian life of Muslims. So to both of you, um, we, we wanted to ask what potency do theological ideas such as compassion compassion and mercy hold um, when we have Muslims today, um, both in America and around the world, who are suspended within an oppressive framework that was alluded to earlier, um, that has endorsed th these um, frameworks, have endorsed and sustained structural violence. Um, so can there be just peace in military action um, against an oppressor? And um, can the core tenant um, in Islam of compassion underscore coercive efforts to galvanize and liberate those who are oppressed? We're wondering how else might political activism manifest uh, to wrest power from those who inflict violence in today's contemporary um, politics? Thank you. Um, I think this is a very important question, and I think the reasons I chose, uh, I mean, there are many scholars that dealt with nonviolence, but the reason I chose Khan and Saeed is because they, they really um, are, at the core of their paradigm is the issue of justice and, transform and transformation and resistance to injustice. And using nonviolence as a tool of confronting injustices, structural injustices. Um, one of the, um, the ideas that Said has about um, when, to, when people have the right to raise arms, 
um, is based actually on Islamic history because during the time of, uh, of the Prophet and the early Meccan phase, they were persecuted and they were unjustly treated and some of them were killed and they had to even go into exile in Abyssinia, but they were not allowed to defend themselves, which is a very difficult concept for Muslims nowadays or many of them to hear the idea that in circumstances of injustice, not to defend, to decline even self-defense. But this is exactly what Abdul Ghaffar Khan did. They were living in a time of tremendous brutality and injustice. And he showed an example where proactive nonviolence could be organized in a way that, that could, yield, could yield better results, even though it was very difficult. But it still made a difference in the lives of um, of the Pashtun at the time. And it shows how even after independence, the problems in Muslim societies did not go away with colonialism because forms of tyranny and injustice were maintained in the post-colonial state that really placed civilian populations under siege, which is why still the issue for liberation is at the core of, of um, so many Muslim or, not, or secular movements in, in the Middle East. This is the, the core question, how to achieve freedom and liberty without using arms. Um, for Saeed, this is, is for, for him, this is the pivotal question because when you use the tools of those you oppress, you are going to reestablish the same order but through different names or different faces. And you need to transcend that kind of structure of injustice and create a legitimate political and social order through the consent of people. That requires different kind of work, similar to the work of Abdul Ghaffar Khan. Yeah, I think this is a, a, a you know, very important uh, question. I, I'm not sure that I can answer them, but um, you know, we must not be uh, too concerned if we don't answer questions, you know, there's a great saying in, by one of the scholars of Islam that if you formulate the correct question, you're halfway to the answer. So um, I, I would say that we need more studies, and in fact it's happening empirical studies, about nonviolent activism um, across traditions. Um, I would say Syria is, is a, you know, the current Chaos in Syria is, 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 is a great example of, of studying because initially there were nonviolent activism, but because of the repressiveness, uh, oppressiveness, and the viciousness of the Assad regime, I mean, it you know, really just um, um, it was a very difficult situation. So it's very difficult if you speak to people who have lived through that uh, trauma as, as to, and many, you know, there was this wonderful documentary about um, uh, a famous soccer player, he was a goalkeeper. Yeah. I'm not sure what is the name of that uh, Sarut uh, or the return to Homs. Yes, right. Uh, how this young man, you know, very popular in the early uh, uprisings and then now he's missing and people don't know where he is and it's a speculation that he might have become radicalized as a result of his trauma and lamenting. Um, so that might be a wonderful case study. Another case study would be my own country, South Africa, right? As you know, the African National Congress had a nonviolent struggle for over half a century. And actually, Mandela, when he was a young man, was one of those young Turks who actually argued for a change from nonviolence to you know, armed struggle. That's why he went to prison. And over 27 years in prison, you know, he transformed himself. Right? And when he came out, was able to kind of mitigate 
Um, but if you look at contemporary South Africa 22 years later, you might ask what went wrong. One of, the, one of the problems that we have is that when, you know, violence is a kind of a genie, if you, leave it, you know, let it out of the bottle, it consumes you. So the current leadership, you know, wonderful leadership, um, Mandela was in, in fact, uh, you know, kind of, um, you know, it's strange to say this because he was in prison, he was kind of protected from this, he didn't get, get engaged in violence, he could go into introspection for many years, but some of the people who were underground who came from exile, are now ruling this country. And when you undertake a violent you know, struggle against an oppressive regime, it does something, it, it dehumanizes not only the perpetrator, but the victim, is, it needs healing. And many of our leaders now you know, got amnesty. They committed atrocities in the name of a liberation movement, but they've never healed themselves. So that's, you know, a uh, strange thing. Of course, this is the, the last point I want to make, is that also the current, um, you know, hegemonic discourse is very problematic. Mandela was regarded as a terrorist even by the United States. So the current hegemonic discourse coming out of the Westphalian peace treaty, coming out of great Western theorists like Max Weber, where the state has the monopoly of violence, so in South Africa, in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, there was a clear thing. The violence of the apartheid state, there was no moral equivalence to that of the African National Congress and others who committed. As bad as that is, that was um, you know, uh, one of the things. Currently, state violence is given a pass. Who are the terrorists or the non-state actors? What kind of weapons do they have? As awful as it may be, driving cars, and we condemn that. But you know, the state has drones, it has the weapons, and you look at the, the, the war in Iraq, 2003, there's no accountability. I mean, you just go into a country, mess it up, one third of ISIS now are former generals of the Ba'athist regime, at least in the United Kingdom, they had a Chilcot report in which there was some kind of introspection you know, about complicity that this was an immoral and unjust war and the consequences. And so, uh, you know, this is a very a, a tough question. If you, you know, go into conflict situations and, you know, in which severe oppression by the state and you tell young people of nonviolent activism, it's very hard, it doesn't fly because they, they experience the violence of the state and often, I mean, dehumanization conditions in prisons, which you know, I you know, you know, cannot begin to explain to you what it means. Okay. Yes. Let's um, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Waskito. I'm a first year student here uh, at the Divinity School. Um, I have two questions. I'll try to keep it short. My first question is pertaining to the definition of nonviolence, uh, the definition of violence itself. I think throughout the speech today, um, the violence that both of you refer to or is a violence that pertain to the conduct of war and, vi uh, and violence in armed conflict. And I want to ask you about violence that not in those con in, in those contexts. I'm talking about 
con in, I'm talking about violence that are done towards women in, um, who are living under Islamic rules whose human rights have been violated. Those who are in fear of st being stoned. Um, LGBT people who are in fear of being killed on the street. Um, the Ahmadi Muslim in my own country who's oft who have been forced out of their houses by the Muslim majority. Um, looking at these type of violence, how would you address this? And would, it, would us as Muslim be able to look back into history and actually find resources to uh, change that? Or should it be changed at all? So that's my first question. And my second question is, it relates to, uh, I do believe that uh, in Islam there are quite, the numerous teachings that teaches peace and, um, and uh, nonviolence conduct. Um, my question would be, because I'm coming from a, a Muslim-majority country in Indonesia, so we're not oppressed, the Muslims. On the other hand, sometimes we're the one oppressing others. Um, this, type of speak, uh, this type of ideas could be taken by those who have uh, political interests to advance their own uh, agenda. So my question would be, do you think that uh, with these values that or that Islam has, do you think it's still possible for the uh, establishment of an exemplary Islamic state, in your opinion? Because right now, a lot in my surrounding believe that Islam has everything. Why don't we just make an Islamic state then? Thank you. Um, I think the notion of an Islamic state is problematic even from a certain Muslim perspective. Because as was discussed earlier, when you look at the, um, the Medina constitution, it was not a religious contract. It was a social political contract between different, uh, di different tribes of Medina. And um, the pro even though it was the prophet who created the, this constitution of Medina, he didn't say the Quran is our constitution. Uh, there were specific rules that related to duties and rights of the, com the communities that came in agreement with this. So um, the Quran is also it's very minimalist when it comes to specific rules about politics. It uses uh, general um, moral principles like if you govern among people, govern um, with justice. So there are large kind of principles that are open to different political systems or interpretations. Um, so one of the reasons that um, people sometimes are critical of Saeed is because he sees things, um, historical manifestations of, of specific social um, conduct of the time of the Prophet as being historically and culturally specific rather than binding. And that uh, as Muslims, as or even as um, like members belonging to any specific um, religious group, the question we need to ask ourselves is that are our traditions binding us when it comes to specific practices or are they providing larger moral principles in which we become the agents and the vehicles for continuing the project as uh, as i mentioned the passage about the the uh, the the whole notion of istikhlaf in quran is the the angels complaining uh, in in the quranic narrative about our our corruption or our injustice and our capacity to kill uh, and so it seems that 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 passage as said argues that really preconditions, istikhlaf, 
that that divine representation happens when we are treating each other as equals and when we stop uh, bloodshed. So, so the I think these are the really central questions that face um, religious communities, but also scholarly debates. What are intrinsic to Islam or Christianity? What are specific? Are these historically and culturally specific things, or are they part of of a certain? Um, uh, religious understanding. I think when we look at our religious traditions, all of us, we have uh, coexisted and adapted to patriarchy, to slavery, and sometimes religious traditions were used to justify and even empower these practices. But at the same time, we see the prophetic uh, kind of modality as being the voice of conscience coming as a counter voice from the very culture that justifies dominance as a voice that questions ways of dominance. And I think if we live true to that, then we will find ways where we could still create a th authentic kind of, you could call it like comprehension fiqh or jurisprudence that is based on maqasid, as some, you know, like many scholars have been discussing, rather than specific rulings. Uh, Fazlur Rahman has actually a very interesting thing about the malaise of modern Muslim jurisprudence is that it, it tends to abide or tends to bind itself to rulings rather than to principles, the principle of adil and justice, rather than specific rulings that took place in medieval times. I hope this answers your question. <laughs> I answered one of your questions, so you yeah. answered that. Let, let me go to the second one. I think that uh, the, the question of, um, of structural violence might be, you know, also cultural violence, which is absolutely important. And, of course, a critically minded ulama who can, you know, lead reform. I think often in our madaris, in our madrasas, we have rote learning. Like, you know, I am a product of that, where we just memorize the Quran and memorize hadith and uh, opinions uh, of the various imams of the past, but we don't have any critical thinking. And we don't know what is known as fiqh al-waqi'ah, uh, you know, contemporary reality. So there needs to be, um, uh, you know, and I think if we produce a new critically minded ulama who can also understand that, you know, this concept of sharia is not an, you know, uh, you know, it's the, sharia is a path, sharia. It means the divinely revealed norms, which are there in the authentic sources. But when we as human beings come to extract a hukum, a ruling, we are involved in interpretation. That is why it's called fiqh, which means discernment. That's why you have many different madhabs, right? Um, Imam Shafi, Imam Abu Hanifa, and so, because they, they, they derive rulings. So you know, the human element in interpreting sharia is very important. and some. Some of us, you know, imams, or, you know, when we speak, we think it's God speaking. It's not. It's we mediating. And that's why hermeneutics might be an important thing in madrasas. So, um, and especially on the question of women, which is uh, very critical. On the last question, I think it's very important. This is not only a crisis for Muslims. The crisis for Muslims is very clear to see it. I call it shirku dawla, the idolatry of the state. Right? Muslims think that if they have an Islamic state, oh, it will solve all of their problems. I usually tell my, my congregation, we can hardly run a small little mosque efficiently, <laughs> let alone about a sophisticated country, right? Um, so the critical question is, what should be the relationship between religion and the state? Not about Islam, it's not peculiar to Islam. Now, I, I give you, you know, we all know the crisis of Islam. You know, it wants religion to be dominated on the state, the kind of theocracy. 
But what is the crisis about in a Western Christianity? The crisis is what in South Africa, in a wonderful document produced by black theologians during in the midst of the anti-apartheid movement in 1985 called the Kairos document. When large numbers of mainstream churches in our country right, were not able to speak out against the structural violence and indirect of apartheid. They thought this is, this is a being political. So what happens is what is called church theology, where religion in the West gets co-opted by the state to legitimate its violence. I give an example. In 2003, I was at this great university, University of Notre Dame, and I bleed blue and gold. I love it to bits. Right? But I found myself in a huge crisis, you know, as a token Muslim put there in a big theater to speak about the war in Iraq. Right? And fortunately, at the time, uh, you know, Pope John Paul II, he was very unequivocal, unequivocal. He spoke to George W. Bush, and he said, this is not an immoral war. You remember that? So I asked, and many of my colleagues are also, um, you know, uh, Holy Cross Fathers, they're priests. How would you deal with a young man, and we have an ROTC, you know, uh, uh, they, at, at our school, many of, the, uh, of them want to do my course on Islamic ethics of war and peace, and they do Arabic and so on. What happens if a young man comes to you as, as a priest and says, Father, I want your counsel. Should I go in this war that I know that the Pope has said is an unjust war? He said, he'll counsel them, right, counsel the young man, but he'll leave it up to the conscience at the end of the day. Whereas in South Africa, many whites did conscientious objection. They went to prison because they refused to kill in the name of white supremacy, right? He leaves it up to the court. And you look at the liturgy of this young man, I'm just giving an, an abstract example, when he goes to Iraq, comes back as a body bag. You look at the liturgy of the priest, and you can't blame it, he's said to be a martyr. He's died in defense of his nation, even though the fatwa from the chief uh, pope has been, this is an immoral and unjust war. If the same priest and the same young man were in a counseling session and the young man says, Father, I've impregnated my girlfriend, but I don't want, we don't want to get married, we don't want the child, she's in the first trimester. Can we have an abortion? He will not leave it up to the conscience of that. He will say that if you do this, you risk excommunication from the church. Here is Iraqi human life, the sanctity of human life. Here is a zygote, you know, unborn, both are important, but why is there this discrepancy? Oh. Because we have, in, in, in Notre Dame, we, on our basilica, we have a different trinity. If you go there, God, country, and Notre Dame. Uh, yeah, I, I have to say something on that, because, because this is the key, the church and all religious tradition in the West have learned through painful story, especially in Europe, to disconnect topics of guidance vis-a-vis -vis their flocks, so to speak. And all questions related to war, to conflict, to social regulation has been taken on by the state. 
And so there is this long term. Indeed, you're right. If this question were even asked before the nation state, the response would have also been different. But that's what the state has done, including in secular context, to reconfigurate the, the, what is legitimate or not to address vis-a-vis -vis the spiritual guidance of, of the people that belong to your church. And, and that's not what has happened in Muslim countries, not because of Islam, but because of the state has never been a secular state to start with. But I, I mean, yeah. so you're right, this is the reason. But who would bring the state in theological debate? You see, we are, we are here in, in an incapacity really to think across these two, these two body of knowledge. And that's also the problem we are, we are facing here. Uh, and also when it comes to the issues of violence and nonviolence and secularism, the, the, these kind of lines are not easily delineated comfortably around, around religion and secularity. Because in the context of the third, the third, like the third world context in the post-colonial moment, or s specifically in, in the Middle East, you find that secularization was also associated with, with various forms of coercive practices by states who wanted to modernize and secularize their societies forcibly. So a lot of the radicalization you see is a response to that encroachment into religious identities by these post-colonial states, which is why, in many ways, the responses of groups like ISIS reflect and mimic the kind of brutality that, that were received by the local populations. In fact, a lot of ISIS um, leaders are from the previous Iraqi regime that have been disfranchised. So when you see these layers, then the questions of violence and nonviolence and religion uh, become far more complex. And they're not just around, oh, religion causes violence and secularism causes peace. We, his, as you were saying earlier, when you do sociology and, 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 and history, you kind of start uh, a lot of our categories and uh, and facile uh, ways of delineating things to break down around sociological realities because there are so many other contingencies that come into play and they, that give us a far more complex understanding of social and religious reality. I think we can open to the floor, uh, the whole floor, not, <laughs> not, not only the working group we have. If you could introduce yourself also for the sake of the recording, please. Thank you. Yes, hi, this is Mohammed Gabiz. I'm one of the physicians. I work in Boston. I'm affiliated with the Harvard Medical School. Um, I'm from Syria originally, so um, I've, I've met uh, Afra before. So thank you for coming and thank you for Brother Omar. Um, uh, my question for you, or maybe a comment as well, if you can help me understand, or at least try to understand the reason what you know, the dilemma that I live in as a Muslim person who've been here in this country for a while now, why are, why are we always under the sort of um, a spotlight? Why, why Islam, as you, you know, indicated in your speech, we are sort of the, peop uh, the religion or Islam or the Muslims are the people to be defending um, their religion, you know, that they are the source of terrorism, for example. Um, um, is it... Uh, the media? Is it the politics? 
is it just sort of the civilization cycle? Are we just behind? Are the Muslim you know, countries um, like behind in their um, development or progress over the years? Um, is, it, you know, is it just all that? You've, you know, you've mentioned um, you know, the great uh, scholar or person from Afghanistan who, you know, like a century ago or so, who uh, liberated women and tried to get women to be engaged. So what, you know, the, I guess the Muslims figures don't like the ideas of you know, being, again, you know, uh, leading in, in civil rights or civil you know, values. What is it that we are um, missing here? Is it, is it the influential figures in this world? You know, is it the media again? Is it the, you know, the, the economic uh, power that's you know, affecting that um, sort of theory that's you know, uh, out there? And we, we, we tend to say, yes, of course we are, we, you know, we are targeted as you know, um, ter terrorists. We have to defend that, but why, why are we you know, always like in that spot? For example, you know, me being from Syria, I've, I've just witnessed that the Russian um, airstrikes, you know, as we know, I, you know, whoever follows the news, they, they, um, the most majority of their strike is against civilian um, people. Most recently, just last week, seven kids, you know, uh, within one family and their father, who's a physician, they all were died in, in Idlib in northern, northern Syria. As we, we know, we know, whoever follows the news, the, the first attack or the first sort of declaration of war from the Russian government uh, for, against ISIS or against um, terrorism was blessed by the Russian church at that point. Um, so now we know that, you know that the attacks are mostly against civilians. Why is the, the church not sort of declaring backwards, saying, well, you know what? This was not a war against terrorism. So this is, again, a formal um, you know, um, uh, state that is sponsoring uh, this war. I'm sorry, this is taking a long time. But um, if you can help me understand, or at least you know, um, help me know why, why, why is this, you know, this is what's coming on. Thank you. We're going to take other questions and then ask the two of you to respond. I saw hands. Yes, please. I'll start from the beginning. Uh, I'm Nirbin from the Kennedy School. Um, you have a wonderful vision of what Islam can look like and what it can be when it's sort of uh, disseminated more. So my, my question is, how do we get this sort of new vision of Islam out there uh, in terms of the propagation of these ideas, the dissemination of these I ideas, how can other religious populations or other states, do you think, uh, how can they be exposed uh, to this sort of new face or um, under-recognized aspects of Islam? One more and then we ask the, yes. Yes. Thank you so much uh, for both presentations. My name is Dr. Sasha Dehkhani. I'm a fellow at the Center for Study of World Religions. I have two questions. Um, one is uh, about um, the Khan movement. And uh, I, I like that a lot, that idea. The question that came to mind in light of Islamic theology or legal studies, um, it seems to be that um, in the philosophy of the Khan movement, it is very necessary to think about the role of Muhammad in the Meccan period. 
Um, but on the principle of Nasdaq and Mansur, what happens then with the surahs that actually abrogate things that were stated in Mecca and later on in Medina, another model comes into being. I just mentioned that because you know that um, one of the famous professors in Islamic legal studies, Abdallah Naim, mm. mm -hmm. whose uh, teacher, Mahmoud Taha, was killed, yes. as you know. His idea was that the real Islam is the Meccan Islam. But the Medinan Islam is actually not the real Islam. And that was one of the reasons that led to apostasy. So can you maybe speak a bit about the role from Mecca and Medina and the problem of Nasr and Mansur, because otherwise it would not be applicable. The second question is very short. It's about the Mar Marrakesh uh, Declaration. Um, I had a presentation yesterday about the relationship of the Baha'i religion to Islam mm. in, in Egypt and Iran. And usually when we speak about religious minorities and their rights, it's pre-Islamic Ahl al-Kitab. Mm -hmm. So what do we do in the Marrakesh Declaration with religions that are monotheistic but are born after Islam? Mm. If you want, uh, could I start with the very last question? Um, um, be Muslims generally, the kind of uh, mainstream orthodox culture um, acknowledges legit the legitimacy and authenticity of previous revelations, previous traditions of Judaism and Christianity, and generally has trouble with those that come after. Uh, they're seen as heretical movements. But actually, this, th when you look at Islamic history and scholarship, it wasn't so una unanimous. These things happened much later as... Uh, in, there was a stagnation in intellectual kind of debates because Al-Mawardi in Al-Ahkam al-Sultaniya, he actually, uh, this medieval scholar, talks about the right of any group to form uh, any religious sect or um, even found a new religion um, unless, uh, uh, and they, sh they should have all the rights except in cases they yarfa'u uh, al-hiraba, unless they raise arm to impose this. So, so obviously there has been scholarships and, and schools throughout Muslim history where there was the idea of intellectual and political and even spiritual freedom was so paramount in, in, in their thinking. Um, and this, this Al-Mawardi was not, I mean, Rumi, because we all know Rumi and Ibn Arabi, and, and it was came from a very juristic, scholastic understanding uh, about politics. So there, there have been, and even there has been um, some writings by as Radic, who considered like very orthodox scholars like Ibn Taymiyyah, who discussed even the idea of shumuliyat al-rahm al-ilahiyya. There are certain nuggets that could be taken out of Ibn Taymiyyah where it becomes, uh, where he actually understood that it's not just you don't have to be a Muslim before or after in order to great to to grant to have to be granted divine divine grace. So I, you could go to some other questions, and I could come back. I hope this helps. Yeah, um, I think the Marrakesh Declaration is just the beginning. For me, the significance of it is an acknowledgement on the part of you know a, a great group of Muslim scholars that um, um, that Muslim minorities are suffering discrimination, which is important, and there needs to be something. I mean, much more needs to be done. I think, though, that what is required is a new fiqh, new discernment, right? But we can only do that when we have uh, a group, you know, depth of Muslim scholars who, um, you know, are 
um, confident enough that we're not throwing aboard the tradition, but we, you know, painstakingly working through our our legacy and our tradition to be able to, you know, and and knowing the, the current uh, reality to come up with new positions. I don't think this is unique. Also, all traditions are struggling with the question of salvation of the other. Uh, and so on, and uh, someone just wrote a great book um, about you know, uh, theologies of salvation from Islam, looking at Al-Ghazali, um, you know, um, uh, Ibn al-Arabi, and so on, and you know, it's amazing I mean, the, um, to look back and see, uh, you know, uh, in terms of, there's also a verse in the Quran that, you know, indeed the, the Christians and the Jews and the Sabians, you know, who believe in God and do good deeds, they will have you know, nothing to fear and they will have a reward. So uh, this is the one. With regard to your question on um, what is uh, uh, the cause of it, I don't know, but the key thing is never to be no monocausal. You know, reality is very complex. There are a number of factors um, that come together and coalesce to produce a crisis. And one of them, for me, I've spoken a lot about the political, but the religious, we do have a religious crisis right, uh, deeply inside of us. So it's, yes, there's a religious crisis, and it's political, and it's the media as well, who are not projecting our voices, but, you know, projecting. Um, so it's a complex a number of, of variables. With regard to the question about um, um, the, uh, you know, um, Medinan period, there are, there are two extremes, if I may put it one way. The, the one is to um, you know, Mahmoud Muhammad Taha, Arisala to Thania, to just say that the Meccan period, uh, you know, is the ideal period. Medinan period is a particular uh, uh, experiment in history and in a context. That, you know, the other extreme is what extremists do, is where they use the principle of abrogation, of naskh, to say that the last verses supersede all the other verses. So I think if we can find a balance between that, I do think that the Meccan phase is very instructive. I think the legacy, even already by the 12th century, you know, great scholar Abu Hamid al-Ghazali, who died in 1111, was lamenting the obsession with legalism of the scholars. And he spoke about a soulless legalism, right? Whereas I think that the Meccan period says that the ethics and the morality supersedes law. I mean, you know, we in this country, or in South Africa, we can drink alcohol, there's no law, but why don't we? It's our internal ethical commitments, the moral you know, uh, formation. But if you have a law, you know, in some Muslim countries, the moment the guy gets in the plane, he's ordering a scotch. So you know, it's this, I think you know, we have superseded, and there were no laws in, in the Makkan period. So it's very instructive for us to go back um, in our history, and, and I said, as I said, I mean, there's a great project of, of reform but we don't have the space. You know, in many Muslim you know, you just live from one day to the other in what I call damage control. Yesterday there was another huge uh, massacre and so on. And so what we have to do is to say, this is not Islam, we have to condemn it. So you live from day to day just praying when another incident happens. Please God, they did not be a Muslim. And unfortunately, we are proven wrong, which means that we do have uh, a major crisis within the House of Islam that we need to deal with. Um, I would like to make some comments about the Meccan and, and Medina phase, because as you said, there are these people who want to abrogate, to abrogate the Meccan phase or the Medina phase. But I think it's also beneficial to look at these as situationally, because 
um, this is more of an ideological position that takes the Mecca or the Medina. But historically, when you look at the Medina phase, it wasn't just a violent phase, and the Meccan phase was just a, a non-violent non phase. Yes, the Meccan phase was non-violent, and they declined from self-defense. But Medina actually contains a lot of also non-violent ethos, mm -hmm. because the, the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, for mm -hmm. example, that the Prophet created with the Meccan people was pretty much at the height of his, his victorious or, or military um, um, prowess, and yet he chose not to, to fight the Meccans, and he, he accepted a treaty that many of his followers saw as, um, as a treaty of defeat, because it gave, um, the, the, it gave advantages to the Meccans and, and not. Not only that, uh, I did Quranic hermeneutics, and I didn't do Hadith hermeneutics tonight, but there are actually Hadith towards the end of the Prophet life, and there are in uh, Sunan Abi Dawood and, and, and Sunan uh, al-Bukhari and Muslim that deal with Bab al-Fitan, where towards the end of uh, the, the, his life, the Prophet actually, and I have uh, some of them here, um, there are several of, of these narrations where the Prophet um, says to his followers, he says they're um, stretching into the hands of time. This is a nice uh, Arabic, uh, ancient Arabic expression. Uh, stretching um, into the hands of time lies ahead chaos and crisis, or what, what, uh, what he said uh, referred to as fitna, like pieces of a dark night. A person of faith wakes up having, having faith and then is denying the truth as the night falls. Those who sit still and are better than those moving. Break your arrows and cut the threads of your um, of your arches and then he says uh, and then he says if then the companion asking the question he says what should I do a uh, prophet if they enter my house wanting to kill me and the prophet says if if you fear the glittering of the sword might scare you, throw your robe over your face these are uh, Hadith narrations that came before the, the, the death of the Prophet, towards the end of the Medina period, where he is warning of times of chaos. And then in, in one uh, narration, Abu Dhar al-Ghafari says, shouldn't I defend myself? Then the Prophet says, idhan sharakt al-qawm. Then you have participated with the people in, 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 the, in the time of chaos. So if we take these, this is what Said does with his theology of nonviolence, where he takes all these hadith and Quranic verses that dealing with violence and he creates a situational reading of when violence is allowed and when violence is not allowed. And so he looks at the conditions of jihad where the prophet, when they were a persecuted community, declined self-defense, yet when they created a state, a central, a kind of central, centralizing state, a, pro, a political project with the consent of a community, with a social contract, they had what I guess we could call in the variant terms, a monopoly of, of, that, of the means of violence. And it was to actually, Said argues, to create rule of law in Arabia rather than the chaotic situation they, they had. And there are several hadiths dealing with that where the prophet says, I want a woman to go from Read when he talks about his project, he says, one day a woman shall travel from Mecca to Sana'a and tadhab al-mar'atu ila min Mecca ila Sana'a la takhafu illa Allah wa dhi'ba ala ghanimiha. He says, not fearing anyone but God 
and the wolves over her sheep, referring to actually women's mobility as a sign of safety in, in Arabia, which to, to a large extent was established. And even Harubur Ridda have to be like the, the apostasy, what they call, the Muslims call them apostasy. Many of these tribes did not revert from Islam, but they refused to pay taxes. So it was a political system that Abu Bakr and Omar were even trying to maintain rather than a religious system. And so that that's what people like, I find medieval scholars like Mawardi really like clarify and modern contemporary intellectuals like Said or others um, clarify about, or Shahrur recently also about the nature of the state, where and when violence is, is, is used legitimately. Um, and of course, it's as, as you were saying earlier about just war theory um, and how there are so, so many interconnections. But I think it is, um, it behooves us, as, as you were saying, as Muslims to push these boundaries because we have to see um, our membership in our cultures, in our traditions as continuing projects, as dynamic projects in which we are pushing the moral frontiers to expand compassion as we are asked by our traditions rather than, that, rather than creating restraining and restrictive practices. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you. We are at the end of this uh, of this session. Um, I will take a few minutes to close up, and then Dean Graham will uh, not Dean, sorry, Professor <laughs> will 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 say also a few words. Um, just to wrap up this, I don't know if we can wrap up, but um, it seems to me, and I'm going to play a little evil advocate here. These are remarkable uh, position on Islam and the Islamic tradition. W what happened is that most of this intellectual reflection or even activist position are not channeled into the politics. Mm. At the end, the politics of peace, of conflict <coughs> resolution, is not made by the theologian. All remarkable are they. But this doesn't mean that the so-called states lets religion off the hook. And that's the problem. That's what you were hinting several times. We have also a nationalized form of Islam that has developed and that has lost all this kind of sophisticated, more, I would say, pre-modern or traditional forms of looking at your tradition. And, and so as much as all this experience, to go back to one of the questions, how do we make this happen? The new generations across Muslim societies are not educated this way. So this is a responsibility that is beyond one intellectual pro providing a wonderful you know, interpretation. What I see is young people who get the more, you know, uh, utilitarian, uh, politicized version of Islam because that's what they learn. And what's the solution here? I don't know. So uh, this is where the question of the, our intellectual role as academics, I always joke and say that the only place now where the, the Islamic tradition is really taught in the spirit of knowledge and learning is Western American academia. Yeah, I agree. But does it have an influence on the way that young people today relate to all these texts? 
So, uh, that's the problem. And so I leave you with a bigger, more even kind of um, disarray than, than we wanted to. But this is, this is really an issue that for me is not only academic. If it was academic, I would say, okay. But it, it does have consequences on the ground, as, as we heard from, from all, the two of you. But there is a rise in ethnocentric national, like national and populist movements around the world, and I think it's a it's a challenge for all of us. There's there's this is a moment in in yeah. time where we seem to be kind of regressing um, a step. I want to say not two steps because history does not move in very clean kind of clean unilinear fashion. But there is kind of I, I'm hoping that there is a kind a general trajectory. But there seems to be that we're experiencing a moment of, <laughs> of ethnocentrism everywhere. We can, but the role of religion is, is different from ethnocentrism. I mean, that, we, we can start another debate. <laughs> Please, Professor Graham, comment. Yes. 